Welcome to Carry the Lantern. As a writer, I'm excited to see and celebrate some recent moves forward in film and television, namely, more and deeper stories of more people. The commercial and critical success of horror films like Get Out and Parasite, and dramas like Moonlight, Judas and the Black Messiah, and One Night in Miami have put films by and about people of color front and center and on production staffs, writing, directing, and in all other decision-making positions to bring us authentic stories that educate, empower, and entertain. And right next to them is the LGBTQ community giving us new works to inform, represent, and feel, including the smash comedy Shit's Creek, which built on the shoulders of hits like Will and Grace and Transparent to give us a positive, hysterical portrait. Joining me is screenplay mentor Chris Soth with appreciations and predictions for what we might see next. Well, I think it's uh, kind of amazing. The variety we're starting to see now uh, is unprecedented, and it's just not questioned in the way it used to be. It's not big news anymore, and I mean this in a good way. It is unremarkable that a Black man stars in uh, Lupin from Paris. It is unremarkable. The pandemic gave me an opportunity to uh, binge Schitt's Creek. And it was unremarkable there that the main love interest that drove the whole thing was a gay love interest. And in fact, one of the two men in the homosexual relationship was bisexual or pansexual, actually. And that's an intersectionality that is rare to see on film. But I will tell you, it does seem to me like this is becoming less and less remarkable in the good way, by which I mean, I cried at that love interest when those two boys kissed and when they got married the way I do when I, as a straight man, watch the boy and girl kiss when boy gets girl in that in a classic 1940s Hollywood film where boy meets girl, boy loses girl, and boy gets girl. I had the same relief that they had gotten together what is remarkable to me is I don't recall that being this case for me before, and perhaps it's a luxury and a privilege that I get to do it now. Well, what else is remarkable about Lupin is that he has an incredible relationship with his father, incredible relationship with his son, and with his ex-wife. Everything is complex and interesting and not just a superficial portrait. And that's also a major step forward to see someone who has real depth. You know, he has literary tastes and is a man of depth and and a gentleman thief, uh, which is sort of a classic, you know, going back to uh, Pepe Lamoco and uh, the protagonist of To Catch a Thief, the Cary Grant character in Grand Hotel. It's a classic old trope that uh, we have never seen a black man in. And yet, uh, this is the first time I've thought that as I say it. I haven't said, hey, where's our black Danny Ocean? Where's our black master thief? He just happens to be black. Now, there is racism, uh, certainly in the backstory. Racism is practiced against his yes. father and and he's sent to jail. Spoilers for Lupin, if you, have, if you haven't seen it yet. That does play a part but at least the bad guys are racist. And you would just find another way to do that. I mean, it wouldn't ruin the story had they all been black 
and it wasn't racism practiced against his father, but it was just uh, shitting on the servants, as rich people have done ever since, even whether they are of our, you know, of our race or of another race. I root for this African American or this African Frenchman just as much as I root for Danny Ocean. Uh, to say that the Black Panther is a bigger hit than all the rest of the Marvel movies and just happens to have an African protagonist, for it to become normalized is a huge step, uh, something that I feel like is happening. I feel like a generation ago, we were saying, if Hollywood would just make a movie about a gay love story, and we saw that on screen, that would be the first step to it becoming normalized and for there being a crossover audience to go see two men or two women fall in love and cry over it and root for them and have heartbreak for them at the end of Act Two. Well, there have been plenty of independent films, but to be able to see Schitt's Creek and to see these long-term characters develop, this gives people at home who may not have had the privilege of meeting people like this or any real interaction with LGBTQ people, the ability to learn about a certain relationship or a certain character that is appealing and funny and charming and loving. And just by the very nature of getting to know a character like that, it changes how people perceive LGBTQ people. I think you can see in something like Moonlight, which is set in the not too distant past, where there is a lot of homosexuality put downs and a lot of self-hatred where people did not feel accepted. There's intersectionality there because of course there's you know prejudice against uh, the LGBT community from uh, every other quarter of the racial uh, spectrum. Moonlight, if this were just a straight love interest, it would be a classic coming of age story of someone discovering their sexuality. Here they discover it and they have an additional obstacle to the ones we all face when we discover our sexuality in that it is not normative and it is a same sex interest, though that we, you know, we learn that's less less and less unusual and a prejudice amongst their their own family as any gay person might have but particularly in the uh, one portrayed in that film our protagonist has and that too less so even then and I, I don't think that is five years ago that moonlight came out and won the oscars and now we're you know we're talking about it you know being normalized in Chits creek i felt like that was abnormal then I mean, I think everyone at the time said for an African-American film to win that many Oscars, including Best Picture, is so unusual, so much so that I don't think anyone at the time said, and what about a gay film? It's a gay film as well. And now on Schitt's Creek, as you, as you say, you know, I can spend weeks or months or years involved in that relationship. And I will say, I cried at that wedding. These were fictional characters. They just happened to be gay. And that love... I don't know that we can ignore the Supreme Court decision that love being normalized and becoming the law of the land is happening in art. There's just a sort of a, a positive feedback loop there. You know, if you remember Joe Biden saying, I think Will and Grace helped us understand gay people. Yes, I believe these characters have made a big difference because they're in your home. That fed into marriage. And now I'm claiming that gay marriage or same-sex marriage uh, feeds into uh, the art as well. So the art normalizes the uh, societal change and the societal change normalizes the art. And I'm using normalizes here in the good sense. In my youth, films were made 
for audiences and the demographics were divided up racially. There's you know, no secret of this in the studio and in the studios. And if you remember movies like Straight Out of Compton or even going back further, black exploitation films like Superfly, there was sort of no question those were being made only for African American audiences to go see. And by and large, that's what happened. And when I would see them, I could tell as when I became an adult and saw a kids, a children's film, well, this just isn't made for me. However, I can say that uh, Get Out is a really good horror film. I have my quibbles with it, as I do with them all. Uh, One Night in Miami is a good example of sort of an ensemble piece. I think One Night in Miami is showing a long scene with four Black guys talking about really important topics like how they want to express their religion, how they want to express their political views, is an amazing step forward from seeing one Black person or one person of color having a viewpoint that then is supposed to stand in for everyone. Here you're seeing diversified views. Not everybody feels the same way. Uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom does a similar thing in in period. It's more of a power struggle among a, a dra- jazz trio playing back up for Ma Rainey and their differing viewpoints and quibbling. But you make an excellent point about One Night in Miami. They do get to discuss that. And I think Chris Rock talks about how Barack Obama had to be a great president, and he'll know we made a big step against racism when there's a mediocre Black president, because this freedom to be bad and not have to be the best is not granted the African-American community. African-American demographics excel particularly in sports and are disproportionately represented in professional sports and in entertainment because these are meritocracies. Uh, You can blow the other actors out of the water in an audition. You can knock the other players off the field in sports, and there's just no question that you did it. We hear these stories about Jackie Robinson. He just had to be better than everyone else. Uh, Willie Mays as well, and going up through Hank Aaron, who received death threats as he was nearing Babe Ruth's records. Even these meritocracies, there's no room to be only okay. So when I say I have these quibbles with these movies, I don't think I loved uh, One Night in Miami as much as you did. However, I agree with you, it's an important film because no one's representing the Black point of view. Here are Black people, all with different points of view. As white people have been allowed uh, to have as characters in movies forever. I also think it's a big step forward for things like Parasite and Roma to be presenting other cultures to us where we're able to see poverty in different cultures. And I've seen a lot of Korean horror film and magic realism from Mexico and South America, but I have not seen films like this before. This year, we're seeing stuff like Nomadland and Hillbilly Elegy, which is showing us a little bit more and varied portrayals of the American poor. I think it's a really great thing that we are in a new era where we can look at people who are poor, we can look at people of color differently and with more variety. So I think there's a lot of things that have happened that make me very hopeful for storytelling now. 
I agree with you. And there's varied viewpoints that are all finding their audiences, I think, thanks to streaming. And Netflix is putting an unprecedented amount of money into developing that kind of thing as other streaming platforms are and to be profitable with sort of you know stealing the YouTube ad model and feeding you targeted ads to smaller and smaller audiences so that they are still profitable those things can still turn out to be profitable whereas when there was only everybody has to come to a theater or everyone must tune into one of three channels it didn't make sense to not swing only right in the strike zone and i can say when I was trained as a screenwriter, never have an unsympathetic protagonist is something we were told, or that kind of thing was very rare. You'd see it in gangster movies. They were always very charming, which is why you cast Jimmy Jimmy Cagney as your gangster. They're charming at first, and then someone tries to kill them, and then they turn, and it's sort of a downward character arc. And now the main character in Ozark is kind of despicable. The protagonist of Breaking Bad, kind of despicable. And this diversification has made it you know, very profitable to have African-American protagonists too. And that has allowed uh, people like me, stodgy old people who grew, only, grew up with only white movie stars, to discover them. I believe the star of uh, Lupin, you know, for me to discover that actor, it's not like it's 1980 and I'm saying, oh, Eddie Murphy, this guy's great, as I did. It's a French actor in a French series, I know of him now. This generation will go to a movie with an African-American protagonist, whether they are black or white. And I know people my daughter's age who are, you know, as, as white as we are, whose favorite film is Get Out. Well, horror is in a huge renaissance, so that makes sense. Yeah, and had seen it 10 times. You know, it is a, a, a film of African-American themes, socially important, and they, you know, they think it's the best thing ever. But they're also going to Black Panther, and the men are going to films with female protagonists, whereas it used to only be the other way around, which is why it was sort of a male star-driven system, which I can say it was not, right, before television, it was actually a female-driven star system. Television, which is geared or was geared largely to women, that has changed and they are out in the workplace and uh, they, they want their own stories. And those stories that were just for women were not terribly good. Shooting at that lowest common denominator, as I said before, and now the audience is fractionalized and they have to be a good version of what they are to build and retain an audience. Can you tell me with your screenwriting background what you think makes a great film? Uh, sure. What makes a great film for me, of course, is a great story. And of course, great characters. I don't actually think you can have a great story without characters or great characters without a great story. So I sort of think of the same thing or a system working together. And tension. So a dilemma that we are wondering how it will resolve and a rooting interest or a hope and a fear. So tension, what I speak of is dramatic tension here, is that hope versus that fear. Every movie we come into, we are hoping for an outcome and we are fearing a worse outcome. So to use the example of get out, we are hoping that hero will get out of that environment where everyone wants to kill him, or the plan is to neutralize his brain, right? A living death, worse than dying. Our hope is that he will, that he will escape unscathed. Our fear is that he will uh, experience sort of the zombie 
like life and that he will be in the uh, sunken place, I believe it's called, where uh, uh, where Catherine Keener sends him uh, via hypnosis. You know, this fear mounts and mounts and develops. We don't know that from the start. We know there's something ooky about these white people. And then it seems that they're auctioning off black people. In between, we've uh, seen a couple of black people act very strangely, like they're not in charge. They don't have their own volition. Right. And then we see that he, too, is going to be auctioned off. So this tension mounts, and we get closer and closer and closer to our worst fear. At the time that the movie began, we hadn't even thought to fear that he'll be a zombie with someone else pulling his strings. What they have is, of course, a metaphor for slavery. And slavery, of course, is, is the death of freedom. So it's all those things, and, and yet much worse because he'll sort of be a silent observer as uh, someone else pulls the strings. So you see how that fear morphs and develops and gets worse and worse and worse. And our hope that he can somehow escape seems more and more remote. If we do a graph of the tension, right, it would be a mounting, it would be a, what's called Freitag's triangle, where the vertical line is tension. So it would go up and up uh, as time goes on. And with the peak being when they're about to take his brain out, where our, our fear is the closest and the and the biggest it's ever been, and our hope seems furthest away and and really hopeless, and we are hopeless. So tension, hope, and fear, and of course, surprising twists, but they can't just be random. It would be no good if the main character in Get Out turned out to be a robot, as works in other stories that allow for that, that are more sci-fi. It can't come out of nowhere. It has to come organically from the concept, these twists, and they have to develop these tensions and spin us off to a new hope or a new fear. A lot of times in sci-fi, the robots are also almost like a slave culture. Uh, you know, the term robot comes from a play called R-U-R. I think it's Czechoslovakian by Karl Kapek. That's the very first use of the term robot, and it was coined for the play. And it is a potent metaphor of slavery. That's why you wish the replicant would win. Uh, sometimes you do. And the director and the screenwriter seem to be aware of that. I mean, they tap into the humanity in the Rutger Hauer character and do make the death seem tragic. We believe we can enslave robots because they have no soul or no intelligence or no volition or, or no desire to be free, but they give him a metaphor, which is a dove to hold, which is released upon his death and flies heavenward. You know, there's no more on the nose symbol in all of film for a soul leaving a body than that. I mean, it's, you know, goes back to at least to Renaissance painting with doves descending putting the soul of Christ into Mary's womb. The Annunciation is always brought by a dove from God. This thing that flies away from his body as he dies, what else could that be a metaphor for? And it's saying, no, he does indeed have a soul. And we're, we're right up against that with artificial intelligence now. They keep moving the goalposts for when they say artificial intelligence should be granted its own freedom or volition. At one point, they said it's when they can beat all humans at chess. Well, 
they can. Gary Kasparov was beaten, it's 20 years ago now. I've read a few books about this, and the thesis of at least one of them is, it's over. They're human. They deserve rights, or we should stop making them. Dehumanization is what is always used by fascists for racial purposes, for discrimination purposes, for cultural purposes. People need to, when they're watching sci-fi or when they're watching horror film, really take in what is that character saying? What does that character stand for? And I think Get Out had so much power. I'm really glad that it's a hit. Did you feel moved at the end of Moonlight? Because I also felt that that was an incredibly beautiful and touching group of scenes from the cafe on. I mean, he's such a non-verbal character that you just don't know how that's going to play out. But the man he loved also had this really touching acceptance of him that had started when they were young, when he was being bullied. I thought it was just beautiful. With Schitt's Creek, because it's funny and everything, I'm sure it had tons more viewers. But I do think anybody who would actually watch Moonlight would be moved by that. I found it moving and I recognized it, it was moving and, and I certainly respected the work of the writer and all of that. I don't remember whether I cried at it or not. And I've only recently started to notice, wow, I'm crying at these gay love interests just as I would for a man and a woman when they finally get together and they break through those barriers. And this is a step on the path to normalization. Right. When I told my daughter at one point that a stepdaughter of mine had come out to us as gay, she texted back immediately, I'm so happy for her. That wouldn't have been the reaction of my generation. Uh-oh, gay, how do you feel about that? Or, oh, didn't you want grandchildren? Things like that would be, say, would be said back then. You know, now it's normalized. And, you know, we ordered uh, pizza and had a party that night, a little, bit, a little bit of a coming out party. I suppose one day it will be no more, how shall I say, remarkable than someone realizing they're heter heterosexual which kind of never happens. You just know it. And, and that had been the case with my stepdaughter as well, I guess. And there won't be as many social that say that love is only this, that confuse gay kids as they're growing up and say, but I've only ever seen these examples of love. And yet I don't, I feel a different thing. Where's that? Because they will have that. Maybe 20% of stories will be that as 20% of people we believe are somewhere in the LGBT community. I don't know if you've thought about this at all, but I've been thinking about it in the last couple of months, is where will story go when LGBTQ is not a sense of drama, when race is not drama? Where will drama come from? I don't know. I'm just curious. Who is the other? Right. Of course, not all dramas are racial dramas. Well, you have mentioned classism. So there's you know, virtually nothing but oblique ra racism in my favorite movie, It's a Wonderful Life. There are a couple of Black characters and they're unfortunate stereotypes, but the conflict is not racial, it's classist. And you mentioned Parasite. And everyone in that movie is an Asian. It's classism that causes that. Now, if you're speaking of a post-racial, post-classist, post-LGBTQ hatred world, uh, where will the conflict come from? That's a, a great question, but I wonder... <laughs> if we'll live that long. <laughs> I think, you know, you'll still... I mean, even in Ocean's Eleven, right, it's, it's 
middle class or lower class guys stealing from a rich guy. There's sort of a classist attitude there. But in this utopia of yours, perhaps we won't need movies. I, I mean, I it seems wildly optimistic and wonderful that it might happen, and I root for it. I think there will always be some classism. Unfortunately, there will always be some discrimination. I won't call it racism because it isn't always based in race against the other. What seems to happen is those groups get smaller and smaller. The trans community is smaller just statistically. They seem to be sort of the last to get their rights. They're still being murdered. At much higher uh, proportional rates, and and this is tragic. The two directors of The Matrix have since come out of, as trans, two brothers uh, who have become two sisters. They were, you know, right. they called themselves, credited themselves even as the Wachowski brothers on the first film. So I I think I'm not dead naming them when I, when I say that. I don't know if they've made a film yet crediting themselves as the Wachowski sisters, but in between they were the Wachowskis. And if you look at the matrix as a metaphor and you look at that with that knowledge, what person would be more qualified to look at reality and say something's wrong? The reality everyone else believes even about them and say something's not right here. There's another reality. And having to make a choice of which pill you're taking or what way you're going to live. And certain trans communities have, have made, I think, more detailed uh, interpretations of the Matrix. And one of the characters who is a woman in the Matrix originally was written as a man on the outside. Then they would go into the Matrix and they would be a woman in there. The red pill is actually, uh, I guess, the pills some people take for uh, uh, gender reassignment. Hormone pills are red. And the Wachowskis have since come out and said, uh, yes, it is a trans metaphor. One thing that will happen is those films will become less metaphorical. We might see a matrix where someone says, I must create another world in which I'm a woman because that's who I am inside. Trans and non-trans audiences alike might flock to that movie uh, as they do to Black Panther now or as men flocked to uh, the first Wonder Woman movie and made, made that a gigantic hit. These films crossing over from their specialized or demographic groups into general audiences and larger audiences is something that I think we'll keep seeing. That metaphor needn't have any discrimination. I mean, the, the bad guys in that movie, uh, the trans matrix movie that I'm pitching now, needn't be transphobic or anti-trans. Uh, they could have entire other reason to want to shut down the uh, computer-generated world or whatever it might be. You see my point that as we become more tolerant and acceptable society, there's always a reason for any two people to come into conflict, I think, regardless of their of their racial group or whether they're in the same or different racial groups. I think you touched on this earlier, which is when we cast a, an African-American in a film, they do symbolize all of the race. And only a white man has the luxury to be good or bad. And if we see a white man acting as an antagonist and doing unsympathetic things, we don't say, oh, they're saying all white men are bad because being white is considered unmarked, is how the linguist Deborah Tannen would put it, but it's considered, I hate to put it this way, normal in this world. The other things are remarkable and so viewed as representative. It's no longer going to be people writing about things they don't have detailed information or experience with going forward, which should change everything. I think that's great. I've actually written something with a trans protagonist. So it's a, uh, just the Bible and the pilot of a television series. Should I be lucky enough to have, have it go forward? 
I know that I need trans and gay and bi writers in, in the writer's room. And I hope helping me correct the mistakes I've made in my pilot and giving me the benefit of their lived experience because The Matrix is a great movie for general audiences. And that metaphor is the reason we need all of these viewpoints in film. Some recent TV trans characters include Taylor in Billions and Jules in Euphoria. And author Neil Gaiman will have trans writers for his upcoming Sandman series. That's how breakthroughs work. People who are spoken about are getting hired to do the speaking. Before that, there were lots and lots of films and stories written by gay men where they would change the other lover into a woman in the last draft. And in their head, it was still a man. Edward Albies, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, the women were originally played by men in drag, but obvious men in drag who are obviously the same sex partners of the other two. And to read it knowing that is, is sort of a different experience. I don't want to stereotype here, but sort of the cattiness and the vitriol of the dialogue is something that gay men might say to each other more and allow to, to uh, bounce off each other more than George and Martha really do. And now you could do it that way. Within the next 50 years, all the great love stories could be remade with gay characters, you know, Casablanca, both with two men and two women. Just as Casablanca moves us, there are many LGBTQ love stories to come, and many we can watch for the first time or see with fresh eyes. Desert Hearts, A Single Man, Carol, Call Me By Your Name, my Summer of Love and Angels in America. Uh, this, you know, wait your turn logic made sense to me at one point, and now it is just appalling. I am always right at uh, justice delayed is justice denied. There's a major change in numbers of women directors. There's a greater than 50% of the nominees for the Spirit Award this year are women. That's great. So that's great. And they're saying they would like to change the idea of how people become assistants and interns in the film and television industry. Because they're not paid, that limits the people who can even apply to people who have either parents paying for them, somebody's paying for them, and they want to try and make it monitored for representation, because that's why it's always been the same kinds of people getting in there. Oh, yeah. What a luxury to be able to work for free for six months or even, you know, even the three weeks. I can tell you that, you know, I used to do a series of interviewing Hollywood professionals. I always began with, you know, how'd you break in? And the most common answer by far, certainly more than half, was... I took a free internship and within three weeks I had a paying job, an unpaid internship. Everybody's responsible for putting your arms around other people. There's definitely things happening, but everybody needs to keep that in mind, even if you are a minority. Like, for instance, there didn't used to be very many women directors and there still aren't enough. But if you get the job, make sure you're also pulling people towards the center. The, the people who study these things, and again, here I am, white and male, and speaking from, from a position of privilege, and sure to get th some things wrong, and I apologize to your audience and to you. That's okay. None of us are 100%. <laughs> Right. I don't understand the whole phenomenon of being woke, but for me, I've defined it as I have prejudices that I don't even know I have. 
Like, you know, I, these things are unconscious and I have awoken to the fact that that's possible. Yeah. Do you hire people because you like the way they look? Do you hire people because of their age? Do you hire people because of their resume? There's a million reasons people get hired. I will say that as a writer myself, I've realized that that I have to overcorrect, which is to say, when I create a character, unless they're going to have a baby or something of gender dependent in the script, the, my first thought is a man. So now I always correct that to woman. That can be changed. Okay, if Harrison Ford wants to, to do the film, I can change the gender of the main character unless they are having a baby at the end of the second act. And Unless it's sci-fi. Uh, true, yes. And unless it's uh, Rabbit Test or Junior. It was you know, reading about things like the Bechdel Test and just how many, something like 80% of characters we see on, in film right down to the smallest role are men for no reason. Not It's not representative uh, of society at all. So I kind of make sure all, all my scripts pass the Bechdel test. A uh, woman can want to conquer a big problem just as much as a man. Uh, you know, I, I wrote something about that pandemic and someone trying to end it. I made it a woman. And when I said someone, what did you think? Did you think a male doctor? Doesn't have to be. When I say person, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? Is it a man or is it a woman? Even for women, it's very often a man when you say person. And so that's a bias that I've become conscious of. And, and when I set out to create characters, I say, is there any reason it can't be a woman? Uh, racially diverse as well. And this leads me to a lot of uh, female same-sex relationships because I always want a love interest in my story. And I ask, why can't it be a woman of the second of the love interest as well? And very often there's no reason that it can't be. Maybe an overcorrection, but we were so mistaken before that for things to even out even in 50 years would be amazing. Now, when people say, okay, now there's been a black president, racism is over. I kind of say, well, no, when 12% of presidents have been black, we'll be closer. And when half of all presidents have been women, uh, we'll be a little more on our way to say, well, racism has ended in that one office, perhaps, or and sexism and bias and prejudice and discrimination. Do you have any other hopes or fears for stories for the next few years? You know, I try to think a lot about where movies are going. I certainly did it uh, 20 years ago at the turn of the century, what I thought was going to happen in this century. I sort of thought it was going to be 50 years of convergence and then a break into virtual reality. But that's just technology and not subject matter. But the stories that are being told are the matrix is about virtual reality. And there are stories being told about virtual reality that... that that question reality more. And I expected that, and I, th I think it's come to pass. Eight out of 10 things, certainly in, on the big screen, are supernatural now. That, uh, just as a genre, questions reality. Something they taught us at USC is that when genres become overworn, they're ripe for two things, parody and recombination. I think the same is true of an art form. I think we, we're in a, a somewhat interesting era now where the blockbusters are, and I don't mean this in a bad way, all the same, which is to say it's Marvel and it's Star Wars uh, coming up close behind Pixar. They all feature spectacle more than was done 100 years ago and even 50 years ago. And why is that? And why don't I think it's bad? You know, Aristotle listed spectacle as sixth 
in his, you know, with plot first and character second, three more things before, before you even got to spectacle. Because the ancient Greeks sucked at it. And we've gotten very good at it. And then film was around for about 50 years and TV came along. And TV does small, intimate stories like the stage, but better with close-ups and subtext, better than the stage did. And so everything that could be done on screen uh, that did that migrated there. And movies were forced to find their own thing. And that moved spectacle up the list to third or even second place. Uh, so the Marvel movies are all sort of the same in that there's a villain who wants to destroy the world, and when he does, it's going to look amazing. We go for that spectacle, and there's a guy or a team of guys who have to stop him, and when they stop him, that's going to even look more amazing than the end of the world did. They're great movies. I think that maybe is what is the meeting of medium and work that movies were destined to become from the time they were invented or from the time TV was invented and, and said, now we're going to define ourselves as an art form and you guys need to define yourselves better as an art form and say, what is a movie that is not a TV show and what is a TV show that is not a movie? And there are certain things they do that, that is different as well. I expect that trend to continue. I don't know if you saw a movie out within the past couple of years called Ready Player One. Mm -hmm. The main characters are sort of on an Easter egg hunt and have to find a bunch of things. They're competing to win, basically the chocolate factory. The fourth sequence, they have to go into the movie The Shining. So these are characters in one movie going into another to find a prize and bring, and, and bring it back. And I think we're going to see more of that. I think we'll see a movie where two stoners smoke a magic joint and get sucked into Star Wars, knock R2-D2 out of the loop, and now they have to carry the hologram. And the whole universe depends on them. And we'll see people who you know are sucked into their favorite movie and become the protagonist. Movies that are more self-referential. I think this will, I hope this will, something like it, will replace the remake. I think a movie that heralded this, that I like, that does it well, better than Ready Player One, is Galaxy Quest. And it's great, and it comments on the form while being a great example of the form. That's what the postmodern cinema does when it's good. So are you saying the opposite of the Purple Rose of Cairo when it comes off the screen, that people will go into the screen? I, I'm saying both will happen. The form will become self-referential. It already is in many ways. They already quote famous lines all over the place. And I sometimes wonder if a lot of people haven't seen those original films and if they even recognize that as a quote. Boy, that line, we're not in Kansas anymore, happens you know, in a lot of movies. And I love the smell of blank in the morning has been filled in, filled in with a million things. I don't particularly love that. I mean, I actually usually don't like movies to be other movies to be referenced in within a movie. I think a movie takes place in its own world where the main characters have not seen the same movies I have. They've seen different movies if movies exist in that world. I prefer it that way. But this trend is so strong, I can't buck it. And when it is good, uh, as it is in Galaxy Quest, it's really delightful. All of that said, I think movies will become a bit more self-referential and there will be movies more strongly influenced by other movies that sort of revisit them, I think mainly for a knowing audience. However, you can see Galaxy Quest without being much of a Star Trek fan, or I'm going to guess even knowing it existed and still really enjoy it on a comedic and story level. And is there anything you would like to see happen? You know, I would like to see room-made 
for smaller films. And this is purely selfish, but I, you know, I broke in as a screenwriter selling a spec script back when you could do that. But now if you don't own the rights to a Marvel character or a Star Wars franchise or something like that, it's it's very hard to do. It's very hard to get any project going. And this is within my lifetime, within our lifetime, this has happened, that movie studios were bought by larger media outlets. Now, one hit movie uh, that makes $100 million, that's not a hit anymore. They really don't want to make a movie that they can't foresee making more than $3 million. And for that, they believe they need some name recognition, an Iron Man or Thor or part, part of the Marvel franchise. And those movies all made well north of $500 million. And then the Avengers would come along and make a billion dollars. Good for them. But the uh, marketplace can support smaller films like Parasite as as well. And I'd like to see more studios like that buying up original material, some of which can become franchise material. I feel like, you know, the great writing has moved to series television. That is a different art form. And there's still great writing to be done in the comparatively shorter form of the 90 minute to two hour film and seeing trailers and saying, oh, they, they said the date on the end of that trailer. That's near my birthday. That's what I'll do. You know, the weekend of my birthday, I'll go see that movie. Those things used to happen and they all died at one time. We all look forward to going back to the movies, but there's a lot to celebrate and to get busy making and a lot to inform us. Nomadland follows the lives of Americans living in vans, illustrating today's struggles with class and poverty. And let's ring a bell for multi-show female successes like Shonda Rhimes, who gave us black and Asian female leads in Scandal and Grey's Anatomy, Jenji Cohan of Weeds and Orange is the New Black, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge of Fleabag, and Killing Eve. And we've now had several multiracial TV families, like This Is Us. TV and film are further on the way to looking more like us and showing us the hidden histories of those who didn't used to get a voice or a seat at the table. It's a viewable feast that opens our eyes. Thanks for listening to Carry the Lantern. Love, Eleanor.